Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, your content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Swami, it's the new year. Any fun New Year's resolutions or plans you want to tell us about? Um, no. <laughs> no. Work, work less, play more. No, I got nothing. I, can, I, uh, I didn't even that. notice. I didn't even notice it was the new year. I was working here, and then all of a sudden at sign out, they're like, it's the new year. And I'm like, great, I'm tired. I'm Happy going to bed. Happy new year. <laughs> so, yeah, I, when you get into your late 30s and you have three kids, New Year's takes on a different meaning. So yeah. I always work New Year's so that somebody else can go out and have a good time. That's so nice of you. I am a good person. <laughs> so uh, this week we continued in our neurology block uh, with an excellent lecture by a third-year resident, Kate Ganley, on recognizing delirium. Sorting out delirium, which is an acute process, from dementia, which is a chronic process, can at times be tricky, but it's a really important skill for the emergency physician because we see huge numbers of geriatric patients in the ED. This can be made all the more tricky because, as we all know, dementia and delirium can coexist. As ED docs, we don't do a good job of identifying delirium. In one 2013 study from Annals of EM, it was found that ED providers misdiagnose delirium anywhere from 50 to 80% of the time. Yeah, and a review of ED delirium in the elderly found that 70 to 20% of patients admitted through the ED will experience some form of delirium. So clearly this is common and we're not doing a great job at identifying it. And this is bad because if the patient has delirium at the time of admission, they have a higher six-month mortality rate. Delirium accounts for longer length of hospital stay, as well as increased use of patient restraints, both chemical and physical. Delirium also could be the only evidence of disease in a patient who can't really give you a full history. When it is identified, a proper diagnostic workup can be done, and also medications that may worsen the delirium can be avoided, and therapeutic measures that can address the delirium can be started. So let's start with a little review of the basics. Dementia is a highly variable clinical syndrome, but generally is characterized by a gradual decline in cognitive function. About 3 to 10% of cases are reversible, and causes of reversible dementia include depression, hydrocephalus, subdural hematoma, drugs or medications, a list of toxic metabolic causes, and alcohol dependence. So as opposed to dementia, which is chronic and gradual, delirium is an acute, confusional state that is suspected to be precipitated by an underlying medical condition. These conditions include things like, again, infection, toxic metabolic causes, hypoxia or cerebral ischemia, acute systemic disease, nutritional deficiencies, trauma, intox, hypo or hyperthermia, and of course, meds. It's characterized by a fluctuating course that involves alterations in consciousness. The most important thing to note about this for us in the ED is that delirium has a fluctuating course, so reassessment is going to be crucial to finding this condition. Another important thing to think about is the variety of ways in which delirium can present. We often get a picture of the out-of-control elderly patient requiring sedation or restraints, but in fact, hypoactive delirium is more common and an easier-to-miss presentation. So to go about identifying delirium, we can turn to guidelines set out for us by SAEM, which we'll link in the show notes. Their recommendation is to include a multi-part screening process. This starts in triage where the nurse first assesses the patient's level of consciousness as well as their level of attentiveness by asking them a simple question like, can you spell a word backwards? The usual word is something like lunch or world. If they are thought to have an altered level of consciousness or make more than one error in the spelling test, they're thought to have a positive triage screen and now we can move on to the second step. Step two in this screening process is the Brief Confusion Assessment Method, or BCAM. This is a little trickier to explain, although it's not at all complicated to perform and should actually take you less than two minutes to do. It's great for our fast-moving ED brains in that way. Check out the link in the show notes for the flow sheet because it's really easy to follow. But in brief, it's a four-step process. 
First, we assess for altered mental status based on caregiver report. No altered mental status means no delirium. Yes, they are altered, move on to step two. Step two assesses attention. The patient is asked to list the months of the year backwards starting with December. If they make less than one error, done, no delirium. More than one error means move on to step three. In step three, you again assess for level of consciousness. If it's thought to be altered, the delirium screen is positive and you're done, they have delirium. If it's not altered, then move on to step four. Step four looks for disorganized thought. The provider asks a series of questions and gives some commands and asks the patient to follow them. Take a look at the show notes for the specifics here. If the patient is able to answer these questions and follow the commands, the screening is negative, but if not, they're considered to have delirium. Like I said, this sounds a lot trickier than it really is. It's easy and fast. So check out the show notes for the easy to follow diagram in the SAEM guidelines. Additionally, in the show notes, we're gonna link a new podcast by Christina Shenvey, focusing on geriatric EM. One of our first episodes focuses on diagnosing and managing delirium in the ED. As far as basic workup, you know, you're going to start with the things that we always do. Vital signs, hypoxia, hypotension, market hypertension, fever, respiratory rate, and dextrose can all give you clues as to what's going on. I think you need to do some basic testing based on the examination, but it's going to be important to check things like electrolytes, particularly for hypo or hypernatremia, a non-contrast head CT for masses or bleed, a directed infectious workup, which may include a chest x-ray, urinalysis, and possibly a lumbar puncture. Finally, I want to put a plug in for the oft-overlooked etiology, which is thyroid disease. Both hypo and hyperthyroidism can cause this, so consider a TSH in all these patients because you may find something that you can actually fix. Okay, so to summarize, delirium is important to identify in the ED. It is not the same as dementia as it represents an acute change in the patient's mental state. It's important that we identify these patients as delirium is associated with worsened morbidity and mortality as well as increased cost of care. And last, there are quick and easy screening methods available to us. Once we are familiar with these, we can routinely incorporate them in the evaluation of the elderly patient and really improve their care. All right, so changing gears a little bit from the dementia delirium, but staying with our neuro module, let's talk a little bit about our flipped classroom session on ischemic CVA. Now for these sessions, we give our residents a bunch of resources to read, watch, or listen prior to coming into conference. And then during conference time, we have group discussions instead of a lecture. This was a massive segment and we can't cover it all, but let's just touch on some of the major learning points here. Okay, so we spent a while talking about the management of blood pressure in ischemic CVA. So in general, the takeaway was to aim for a BP of 185 over 110 using medications. Some of our attendings favored labetalol, others nicardipine, but in general, either is fine. We talked a little bit about the endovascular therapy options that are available now, but Swami, since we discussed these and the Mr. Clean trial on podcast 27, we probably don't really need to revisit them here. Yeah, the blood pressure management in ischemic CVA is actually pretty debatable. We only touched on this a bit, but the bottom line here is that there's not robust evidence to support routine lowering of blood pressure. Cerebral autoregulation is at play, and there may be a number of reasons the blood pressure is elevated, including the body trying to ensure delivery of blood to ischemic tissue, as well as stress, anxiety, and other causes. The recommendations that do exist are on weak data footing. One of the few things that's generally agreed upon is that if you're going to give thrombolytics for ischemic stroke, you want your BP under 185 over 110. How you get to that BP, though, is kind of up for debate as well. Speaking of TPA, we discussed a bit on this. Oh, finally. So this is my favorite topic. And a couple of weeks ago, you cut me off. You wouldn't let me talk about TPA in the podcast, but I'm really glad you're going to give me the opportunity now. Actually, I'm not. I'm not at all. You're going to have to wait once again. 
<laughs> what we really discussed in the small group session was the importance of developing a script for good counseling of the patient regarding risks and benefits of TPA. It can be really tricky if you're fumbling your way through this. So developing and practicing a routine can be really helpful. Yeah, this is a topic where I think it's important to have the numbers down cold and ready to give the patient. The ASEP clinical guideline that came out this year states, IV TPA should be offered and may be given to selected patients with acute ischemic stroke within three hours after symptom onset at institutions where systems are in place to safely administer the medication, and that's a level B recommendation. Now, there's a lot of purposely vague wording here. If you think the patient in front of you is a candidate, here's how I would phrase the discussion. We think you're having an ischemic stroke. This means that there's a section of your brain that isn't receiving the adequate amount of blood flow. We have a drug that works by breaking up clots. In people who present like you, one in eight of them will have a benefit from the drug, which means that seven in eight will not have a benefit. That benefit is gonna be improved function at 90 days, so in the best circumstance, this drug is not gonna fix you immediately. Now there's a downside to this drug as well. About one in 16 patients will suffer bleeding around the brain as a result of this drug. Now that of course means that 15 out of 16 patients will not suffer bleeding. It's important to note as well that some patients are gonna improve without the drug. And then I try to answer any questions and help advise the patient. That's a nice script to start with. It really plays the numbers you know, evenly, straightforward for the patient. And you'll have to, of course, tailor to the patient in front of you. In most stroke centers where many of our listeners work, a neurology or a stroke team is going to have this conversation with the patient. So what's our role there? Well, I find that many neurologists are overly positive about the drug and don't always mention the downsides and the true numbers. I think our role is to be present for the conversation and add in where the stroke team leaves off if we feel that all the information hasn't been given. All right. I think one of the most important things we talked about regarding TPA is what to do in the event of the dreaded hemorrhagic conversion. Swami, if one of your patients received TPA and then had a new change in neurosymptoms or mental status, you get the CT, you see the new bleed, what do you do? Well, there's no great answer to this. I think most institutions are gonna have a little bit of a protocol for how to do this. The truth is that we don't really have an agent here that we know is gonna work. Now, the good thing is that the half-life of Alteplase or TPA is pretty short, it's gonna go away quickly. But honestly, if they have a bleed on TPA, I'm probably gonna throw everything at them. Tranexamic acid, cryoprecipitate, FFP, PCC, vitamin K, all of these things are probably at play, but none of them are gonna be a solution. A lot of this simply is gonna be crossing your fingers and hoping that they have a good outcome, but look and see whether your institution has a protocol. Okay, so in summary, the benefit of blood pressure management in ischemic stroke is unclear. In patients that are going to get TPA, shoot for under 185 over 110. Choose either a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker and stick with it. Develop a script regarding TPA so that you aren't bumbling through that important conversation. And when reversing TPA in the event of hemorrhagic conversion, use anything and everything you've got. From delirium to bleeding brains, that's quite a day. Yes, it is. All right, well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content EM. We'll have up a core post this Wednesday on clavicle fractures and a journal update this Thursday on starting buprenorphine treatment for opiate addiction in the ED. Visit us on Facebook, and if you like us, like the site, visit our Google Plus page, and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.